We're continuing our series this morning uh, we just called Grow in Grace. And uh, I was thinking back uh, over, over my own life and my own experience about how you and I tend to identify with other people based on something we have in common. Now, um, I didn't grow up a college football fan. Uh, I lived in uh, Memphis, and college football wasn't very big. Mem Memphis has been terrible until recently, and so we didn't really do a lot of college football. We did basketball, maybe a little NFL. And uh, so I never watched an Alabama football game, which is, you know, like culture shock to people in Alabama, that you could even consider not choosing Alabama or Auburn. But I didn't until, until I got married. And my wife grew up here, and uh, marrying an Alabama fan is kind of like marrying a terrorist. You convert <laughs> or they kill you. And so I said, baby, roll tide. You know what I mean? It, it's all good. If you, want me, if you need me to be roll tide, I'll be roll tide. But I didn't understand the culture in which I had entered until um, I remember going to my first few years ago. I got to go to my first uh, Alabama game away. I'd been to a couple home games, but an away game's a little different. And so uh, we were walking the streets, you know, a few hours before the game was to start, just kind of getting some lunch, walking around. And, and, you know, as all good terrorists, I mean, Alabama fans, I, I had my... My little red shirt on with a little A on it, and you know, walking around. You're passing all these people from, from the, other, uh, the other team. And, and uh, I every, I'd pass people that I didn't know. I'd never met them. Now, I kind of grew up in the city, so you didn't talk to people you didn't know. I mean, just not, we didn't do it like that. And, and so I'd pass people, though, and they'd say, Roll Tide. Roll Tide. And I'd look at them, and I'd like, Does that guy know me? And then you had to forget what I was wearing. I'm like, oh, oh, roll tide. Then I start saying, roll tide. RTR, but I put a big RTR out. RTR, buddy. Got you there, RTR. And I found it interesting how we, we tend to identify with people in which we have something in common. So let's start with a, with a real simple one this morning. How many of you are Alabama fans? See, you just identified... Now, how many of you are Auburn fans? Hey, you got awesome yesterday, by the way. Wait, hey, I'm an SEC fan, too. Way to represent the SEC, right? And I'm not sure Arkansas even belongs anymore, but that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> so, so let's do that. How, how many of you are like uh, cat people? Like you, you, you love cats, right? Oh, not many. How about dog lovers? How many of you aren't prejudiced? You hate all house pets equally? Okay, a few of those. Okay, good, 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 good. Some of you are coffee lovers. Let me see it. Some of you are coffee lovers. Oh, yeah. Whoa. Man. I don't even know if I should ask the other one. How many of you like tea? I'm thinking hot tea, not sweet tea. Like, you can't even get below Kentucky if you don't like sweet tea. That's not what I'm talking about. And then there are those people that, um, you know, uh, I don't want to read the book. Just let me see the movie. Yeah, yeah. And how many of you go, oh, no, 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 no. I want to read the book that the movie was made from, right? And, you, and you're the kind of people, can I just be honest with you? You irritate the fire out of me. <laughs> Let me tell you why. Because every time I spend a quality hour and a half to two hours watching a movie, you come along and say, well, the book's better. <laughs> well, I don't have 17 hours to read the book, so I'm just going to watch the movie, all right? Now, some of you are outdoorsy kind of people. Right? You love God created nature. Yeah, you love all that. Some of you go, where's the mall and the hotel? Come on. Come on. It's not a sin. It's okay. 
not sure God made all that, but it's okay. It's all right. And some of you say, I'm, I'm the kind of person that's um, never going to raise my hand when you do things like this. <laughs> yes! I got you! I got you! Yes! And how many of you raise your hand when we do things like this? Everybody else, right? Okay, all right, all right. Yeah, the fun's already over. Too late. You and I are all born with a longing for an identity. We're, we're born longing to know who we are. That's why if you think about it, uh, amnesia is such a terrible condition. Because if I don't know who I am, how do I function? If I don't know who I am, how do I relate to the people around me? How do I grow? How do I advance? How do I function? I don't have an internal point of reference. And as, as you and I grow up, we look for clues on who we are. And we're tempted to be identified by the most outstanding part of our lives. So I'm, I'm going to give you three things that most of us, uh, probably all of us, tend to identify ourselves by as we grow up. It's one of these three categories. It's a title, it's talent, or it's trouble. So in other words, as we grow up, we gain identity from the things around us. And we say, I'm the director of operations or I'm the manager, or I'm the boss, or I'm the CEO, or I'm whatever, or I'm the captain of the cheerleading squad, or I'm valedictorian, or I was SGA president. We tend to draw an identity from those titles around us, or even titles from social circles like homecoming queen, or uh, everybody has heard of, in America at least, the Kennedy family. So my social status, I draw identity because I'm one of the Kennedys. If you're part of a large family or a large family network, you draw some level of identity from them. But here's the question. What happens this morning when you lose your title? If you were to lose your title, who would you be then? Now, we are also tempted, some people who have exceptional talent are tempted to draw their identity from their talent. The quarterback, the musician, the artist, the star. Uh, some people have a talent with working with people. Some people have a talent of making people laugh, and so they draw their identity from that. Or some people have a talent for making money. Just everything they do just seems to work. They're good at it, and they've always been good at it, and they tend to draw identity from that. But the truth is, you and I have nothing to do with our talent. We don't pick our talent. A few years ago, supermodel Cameron Russell made some statements in this regard, and uh, it immediately went viral on the Internet. She, she, a young girl asked her if young girls should want to be models. And she said saying you want to be a model when you grow up is akin to saying that you want to win the Powerball. It's out of your control. It's not a career path. And it, here's the quote I want you to remember. She said, I'm on this stage because I'm a pretty white woman. I want a genetic lottery. Now, what is she saying? What she's saying is you have no choice in your talent. God gave you your talent. You didn't pick it. So who are you if your talent is suddenly taken away? What if you're in a car wreck? What if you get sick? What if something changes and you've based your life on your talent? Then who are you? You based your identity on it. And then I think that we, we are tempted at times to draw our identity from trouble. 
If, if you've had deep pain in your life, we often become identified by it. You're the alcoholic's daughter, or your parents were divorced, or you were abused as a kid, uneducated, neglected, rejected, failure, the wrong side of the track, slow, a nobody, just an average person, no talent, not attractive, no future, loser, you made bad grades, you keep losing your jobs. Everyone is tempted at some point to be identified by their trouble because everybody at some point has trouble. And this is why you'll see sometimes megastars, people that are, you know, in, in Hollywood or uh, well-known or famous or, or whatever, these megastars sometimes you will see these super successful people live destructive lives because their identity is killing them. Because they've centered in the wrong thing. Look, you'll find one of the greatest, as odd as this sounds, I'm telling you after pastoring 25 years, it's true. People who've been identified by trouble for a long time oftentimes have trouble getting healed because they don't want to let go of their trouble because at least it's consistent. It's become their identity. They're identified by it. And as much as you would want to think, we have the answer. Jesus wants to free you and heal you. Part of their identity will be lost if they surrender the addiction or the problem or the anger or the trouble. And it leaves them feeling insecure. If I'm not that person, then who am I? And it causes a vacuum, an identity crisis. Now, if you had to pick one of these, you don't have to write it down. But if you had to pick one of these that you based your identity on before you became a Christian, if you're a Christian, most of you are, if you had to pick one of these, would you say you drew more of your identity from your title, from your talent, or from your trouble? Now just, just think about that for a minute. Freeze that in your mind for a minute. We'll come back to it. So the problem is everything, everything we try to build our identity on is broken or temporary. Romans 5.12 says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, Adam and Eve, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. See, we are born into a world of death. Let me prove it to you. Everyone on earth dies. Right? There's the math. So we are born into a world that is broken, and we are born into a world of death, and the identity we try to build for ourselves is broken because it's built on a foundation of death and not life. Uh, maybe you've heard a story like this. Most of us have. In Havelock, North Carolina... There's a, there's a new subdivision back in, I think, 2005 or 6 that was built on a former landfill. And now all kind of problems are starting to show up. People's yards are sinking in and trees are tilting downhill towards sinkholes that didn't exist when the houses were built. Cracks are appearing in drywall and some people's doors won't close anymore because the foundation of the house is the frame is shifted and the door doesn't align with the frame anymore. A few pipes have snapped, and one man said his dog is digging up glass in the backyard, bringing it from old things that have been buried. Another man claims he knows where a school bus is buried in his neighbor's backyard. Wow. 
Man, there's all kinds of problems coming. How many of you know that's not going to get better? <laughs> right? This is what happens when you and I try to build our life on talent or title or trouble. We are building on a foundation of death. We are building on a foundation that's temporary. It might look pretty for a little while, but what is underground is eventually going to affect what's above ground. You can try to build a good marriage or a good family or a good business or a good life on a foundation of death, on title or trouble or talent, but eventually what's underground is going to show up. We need a total reorientation. We have to build our lives on a new identity because the old identity is polluted. So 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old creation is gone, the new is here. Now here's what I love about that scripture. When it says the new creation is here, it doesn't mean that when you accept Christ, you become a better version of the old you. That's not, if you study in the Greek what that word creation means, you are not a better version of the old you. You've become something entirely different. You're a new you. You're a whole new person. The old is gone. The new has come. But the language also has a progressive nature to it that says, kind of like this, all old things are passing away and all things are becoming new. So, uh, in the New Testament, you see language like this. I just wanted to put it in a graphic form. So when you come to the cross, before you meet Jesus, the Bible says you're blind, and then you come to the cross, and now you see. You were dead, and now you're alive. You were lost, and now you're found. You were bound, and now you're free. You were under law, and now you're under grace. You were slaves to sin. Now you're slaves to Christ. Now, isn't that good news? That's good news, isn't it? You become a new person, a new you, not a, not a better old you, a whole new you. Now, how many of you know, though, that when you got saved, every bad thing didn't go away overnight, right? If you don't believe it, ask your wife. She will tell you. You're not perfect yet. It didn't just poof and it's gone. So even after we become Christians, old patterns and old ways of thinking hold us back. And unless those patterns are challenged and changed, we don't grow. Now we base this entire series on 2 Peter 3.18 that says, grow in grace. We don't grow unless those patterns are challenged. We don't grow unless they're changed. We don't grow, but see, to grow in grace is to grow in our God-given identity. To grow in grace is to grow in the new creation that you've become. It doesn't happen automatically. It's not going to land on you like a rock falling out of a tree. You have to participate in the process. Now, this is a critical issue because most of our challenges in life come from an identity crisis. We either don't know who we are or we're not living out of who we know we are. Most of our marriage problems and our work problems and our addictions and our self-esteem and our bad decisions are an identity problem. So what is our new identity? Romans 3.21 says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known 
to which the law and the prophets testify, this righteousness, this is our new identity, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For how many have sinned? How many have sinned? What does it say? How many? All have sinned. Who does that include? Yeah, yeah. Say, uh, somebody said it right. Me. That's right. Not all them people on the news. Not the Republicans or the Democrats. Right? Me. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But look, how many can be justified? All are justified freely by His what? Grace. Through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Our identity is not built on talent or title or trouble. Our identity is built on God's grace. But we have to have a foundation shift. We have to pack up our stuff and move to a new address. we got to move to a new location. The, the, the problem is some of you didn't forward your mail. You keep moving back over there and checking the mailbox to see what showed up. You've got to shut that thing down. You've got to send a forward to the new address. You've got to quit revisiting that old address. You've got to quit walking around and, and, and being sentimental about those years. You've got to leave that behind. You're a new creature. Stop visiting the old location. Stop going back. When I was in uh, college, my uh, degree of study was missions. Uh, being trained as a missionary... I had to take a class called Comparative Religions. Now, I just want to tell you, unless you're really deeply grounded in what you believe, do not take that. <laughs> because it can be very confusing. I'm at a Christian university being taught by uh, former missionaries. <laughs> and I can tell you, it was, it was, there were parts of the class that were overwhelming to me. We looked at all the major religions of the world and some of the minor religions of the world. And one thing that stood out to me as the weeks went by is how much alike all world religions are. World religions, all world religions, major ones, have, have a lot in common, even Christianity. Now, this is an important conversation for us to have because the more pluralistic our society becomes, the more you're going to hear on YouTube and Facebook and the Internet and the news and entertainment and everywhere else how all religions are the same. What's going to be emphasized are the similarities. That's what you're going to hear about. But, because let me tell you what some of the similarities are. All, all major religions have churches. All have holy writings. All have leaders. All believe in prayer. All believe in that people are imperfect and sinful. All have a religious moral code. And we could go on and on and on and on about the similarities because most religions, including Christianity, have most things in common. But there are three differences that are unbelievable and won't be highlighted in the national conversation, I guarantee you. Here's one of those. There's only one religion in the world whose founder died for his followers. There's only one. Number two. There's only one religion in the world whose founder who died for his followers came back from the dead and predicted in advance it would happen. Only one. 
So Christianity, unlike all other religions in the world, isn't based on a moral code or a set of principles or a set of doctrines or truths. It's based on a person. And that person lived a sinless life, died, and came back from the dead. Now here's the third one. Only one religion on earth do you not have to earn your standing with God. Your standing is given to you by grace. All other religions, you have to earn it somehow. You have to work your way back in. And that's what Romans 3.24 is saying. And all are justified. What's the cost to you? Freely by His grace. Through the redemption that came by who? Christ Jesus. He's the one. He's the difference. That's what this verse is saying. Christianity's built on a person, and that person died and came back from the dead so he could forgive us of our sins. That is what grace is. And that's why it's so important. It's on that grace that we build a new identity and a new life. Verse 24 says, justified by his grace. Now, I brought you all this way for us to, for us to focus right here. Justified by grace. Grace is the power. Grace is the favor. Grace is the strength. Grace is the intention of God. His method is justification. What does it mean to be justified? Well, it's a legal concept. I want to give you three things that this means, and that's what we're here to... That's how we center our identity in God's grace, through justification. So, it's a legal concept that weighs the evidence of our lives to decide if we're guilty or not. It's a, it's a, it's a legal courtroom picture that says, uh, let both sides pre present the evidence, and then God himself, as the perfect judge, will decide over each one of our lives whether or not we're guilty or innocent. Based on what? Based on the evidence. Now, that's a pretty intense picture. <laughs> so, let me give you the math of justification. What does it mean that we've been justified freely by God's grace through Jesus Christ? Number one, here's what it means. It means that Jesus has subtracted what you did. Every evil thing you've ever done, and I've ever done, and we've all done some, we said earlier we did, Jesus' death took away, there's no sin, there's no evil, there's no act of revenge, there's no evil motive, no mean thing you said, no selfish or manipulative or bitter thing you've ever done will be held against you. When you stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ at the throne, when the evidence is weighed in your case, God's grace will not allow what you've done wrong to be held against you. It will be thrown out of court as inadmissible evidence. It won't show up. Now, unless you've been perfect, that's pretty good news. And if you think you've been perfect, we've got other problems. <laughs> I heard somebody say once, justified means just as if it never happened. And that's how it's going to be. So number one, justified means that God subtracted what you did. Number two, justified means 
that Jesus added what he did. Not only did he take away everything bad that you did, but here's what I want you to see. When the evidence of your life is weighed to determine whether or not you'll be condemned, all think about this for a minute. All of Jesus' actions, he lived a perfect, sinless life, will be allowed as evidence on your behalf whether you are condemned or not. We get credit. You ever get credit for something you didn't do? We get credit for what Jesus did. So just think for a second about that. When Jesus healed somebody who was sick, you get credit for that. When when Jesus uh, welcomed sinners, you get credit for that. When Jesus washed feet, you get credit for that. When Jesus took the shame of the world, when Jesus was at the Last Supper and he was betrayed and unselfishly served his disciples, when Jesus was on the cross, although he was innocent, he died anyway, you get credit for that. That's what that means. All of Jesus' actions are added to our credit. So when you stand before the throne, the judgment throne of God, what's going to show up on your list of things you did right is everything Jesus did. He subtracted what you did and he added what Jesus did. Not only did he remove every bad thing, but he added everything. Hey, that's called grace. That's unbelievable. Karl Barth, a famous theologian, once said, Jesus' gift of grace was more astonishing to him than Jesus' miracles. And I think what he means by that is, it's more unbelievable, it's more incredible, it's more, uh, 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 it's harder to believe that Jesus would take away everything you did and add everything that he did justify than it is to watch a person get up out of a wheelchair and walk for the first time. That's easier to believe than what Jesus did for your soul. I think that's what he means by that. What, what did you think of when I asked you where you got your identity from? Title? Talent? Or trouble? Now, in your mind, I want you to pull that word back up. And I just want you to put a big, giant red X through it. Because the blood of Jesus has nullified your need to draw an identity from anywhere else and just write grace over it. The grace of God is your identity in Jesus Christ. Because you have had every bad thing you've ever done subtracted. You've had every good thing Jesus ever did added. Therefore, you need not draw your identity from anywhere else. So what does that mean? To grow in grace, you have to grow in your identity. All old things are passing away. All things are becoming new. So what does that mean? Sir, you are a son of God. Ma'am, you are a daughter of God. The Bible says that you are a priest of God. You are a saint of God. You are beloved. You are forgiven. You are chosen. You are redeemed. You are a holy nation and a royal priesthood and a chosen people. That's your identity. Come on. That's your identity. 
That's who you are. So remind yourself of this identity when? When you're tempted. When you're weak. When you're discouraged, when you're struggling, when you're sinful, when you're apathetic, when you're insecure, when you're feel fearful, when you're distracted, when you're worried, remind yourself, shake yourself and say, I am beloved, I am chosen, I am a son, I am a daughter, I am a priest, I am a saint. Shift the foundation of your identity off of what you, you acquired earlier in life and rested on the foundation of Christ. Now, if that weren't enough, Jesus always goes the whole length, doesn't he? Not only did he subtract what you did, and not only did he add what he did, number three, Jesus multiplies your future. Good at math, isn't he? <laughs> Romans 8. We were, we've been in Romans 3. And, and I, last night I read Romans 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. And if you read that stretch of Scripture, it is so incredibly rich about what God has done and what God is doing and what He wants to do. But when you roll all the way up to Romans 8, this conversation about how we've been justified freely by the grace of Jesus Christ just keeps going on. He just keeps unpacking it. But when you get to Romans chapter 8, he talks about this incredible... Uh, Romans 8 calls it a future glory. We talked this morning about glory. We sang this morning about glory. But he talks about a future glory that all of creation is longing for. The Holy Spirit longs for this. The Spirit inside every Christian longs for this. The whole creation, the Bible says, longs for this future glory. And our future is multiplied. We have a heaven waiting for us when this life is over. And that future gives us a great hope. That future is multiplied beyond anything we know here. But not only does Jesus multiply our future there, He multiplies our future here. Right after this section on the future glory comes this verse you probably have heard, Romans 8, 28. And we know... That in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Not only is heaven better, but your future here on earth is better. I'm telling you, I've watched it for decades. When God's grace enters a person's life, their life gets better. It gets better. And your life gets better. My life gets better. Several years ago, I knew a man who was uh, um, an alcoholic, and his wife was a drug addict. She had become addicted to pain uh, prescription medicine through um, circumstances that weren't completely her fault. And it was just sad. I think that story probably has played itself out across America over and over and over. And it's just sad. It's sad. It's sad that um, we think that medicine... Our culture thinks the medicine, there's, a, there's a pill for everything. And it got so bad in their marriage that they divorced and went their own way and had been separated for years. And when I met them, or let me, let me, let me, let me, let me back up. When he met Jesus, <laughs> yeah. 
when Grace entered into his life, he was a grown guy. His uh, daughter was about, uh, I can't remember if she was late in high school or just out of high school. She was about grown. And when he found Jesus, his life started to change. And everything started to get better. And his addiction was broken. And his ex, she found Jesus. And her life started to get better. And over a year or two's time, their life started to get better and better and better because they both found Jesus and they found forgiveness and they started to shift their identity on something else other than what it had been their whole life. And I had the pleasure and the joy, the only time I can remember doing this, of remarrying them. Because God did a miracle in their life. Now you can't tell me, regardless of how hard a person's life is, and their life wasn't perfect, they had challenges after that, but you can't tell me when God's grace enters a person's life that their life's not going to get better. Their life's going to get better. You put God's grace in the middle of any situation and it will get better. And you want to know why? Because God's grace multiplies your future. Takes away what you did, he adds what he did, and he multiplies your future. And that's, what, that's where I want to stop today. And I want us to pray. Because the future is where a lot of us form a lot of anxiety. What's going to happen? What's going to happen when? Or for most of us, it's what's going to happen if. We go, we go into the future to things that hadn't even happened yet, might not happen, and we pull the negative energy off of them right into the present. And we put it in the gas tank and we try to drive on that. And that just won't take you far, will it? It just worries you, makes you afraid, stresses you out. What's going to happen What's going to happen if? And so this morning, as you think about your future, maybe, maybe you're here today and you say, you know, I've got an unknown part of my future. I'm not sure what's going to happen. Today, I want to give you an opportunity to pray about that. If you'll put grace in it, it'll start to get better. Whether you know what's going to happen or not, it'll start to get better. Some of you say, you know, I've got a tough decision to make. And if I'm honest, I don't know what to do. That's about the future, isn't it? About its coming. Something's got to be decided about this. And I don't know which way to go. Can I tell you, if you put grace in it, it'll get better. Maybe you're wrestling with what God wants you to do. You know what He wants you to do. I've been here. But you're just not comfortable, confident, ready, willing. You haven't come around that corner yet. You know what God wants you to do. But if you're honest, it's a struggle today. I'm telling you, if you'll put grace in that situation, it'll get better. Maybe today, you're like that person I talked about who... 
is struggling to give up some part of your identity. Maybe it's about a title, maybe it's about talent, maybe it's about trouble. But you're just struggling to give up some part of your identity. And Jesus is calling you today saying, it's okay, hand that over to me. And I understand the insecurity, I understand the struggle of that moment. But I want to assure you of something. You can trust Jesus. Hand it to Him. Or maybe you're here today and you're having trouble accepting the identity that Jesus wants to give you. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've seen. You don't know what I said. You don't, you don't know what was done to me. You're right. You're right. I don't know any of those things. But Jesus does. And he says, all. That includes you. All. Freely justified by grace. And in Romans 8 it says, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so today Jesus calls you to take on the identity. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning and I'm going to ask our prayer team to come. And as they're coming, I want to read a scripture to you that I think just sets the table to this prayer time. Hebrews 4.16 Let us then approach What are we going to approach? God's throne of what? Come on, what throne is it? Come on, what throne is it? Like you mean it, what throne is it? Grace! We're going to approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every eye closed, every head bowed. You're in a time of need today. Jesus invites you to come with confidence. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be intimidated. He invites you to come with confidence and faith and trust that when you when you come to the throne of grace he's he's going to make something better <laughs> something is about to get better because we access his grace so today wherever you are whatever your need is this this the people where they're standing right here this isn't the throne of grace this is just a spot for us to pray the throne of grace is in your heart if you're a Christian, it's in your heart. Here's what I want you to do. You have a need today, an identity need, a decision you got to make. I just simply want you to respond to Jesus' invitation. And I want you to bring your future to somebody on the prayer team and say, would you just pray with me? Would you pray for me? I give my future to God. I lay my future down this feet. As the worship team begins to sing, I just want you to come right now and let us pray for you. Come to the throne of grace. Come and let that identity begin to shift. Come and let God's presence begin to touch your heart. Come on, just come now. Let the grace of God, you need grace today. You need mercy today. You need God's touch today. I want you to come right now. 
and let the grace of God touch your life. Let mercy flow over you. God is calling. He's inviting you. You put grace in it, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. I'm not asking you to raise your hand or anything. Just come on. Just come and let somebody pray for you. We want to pray with you. We want to encourage you. Good to see you today.